Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, New Books in Performing Arts. I am Tony Brown, the channel's host, and I am absolutely delighted to be joined by author Sean F. Edgecombe and his book that he wrote called Charles Ludlam Lives, Charles Bush, Bradford Lurick, Taylor Mack, and the Queer Legacy of the Ridiculous Theater Company. How are you doing today, Sean? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. So um, let's start with a uh, passage from your book, shall we? That sounds great. And this is from the introduction. History, my story, Charles Ludlam's ridiculous theater. Camp is a form of historicism viewed histrionically, Philip Core. Setting the stage. Imagine that you have the queer power to travel through and across time, backward, forward, side to side. You close your eyes and click your ruby slippers. No, your pony hair cha-cha heels. No, patent leather fuck-me pumps. Well, whatever makes you feel fabulous. One, two, three times. In a flash, you are transported to the West Village of Manhattan in April 1970, where Charles Ludlam and his new ridiculous theatrical company are about to perform their play Bluebeard at a gay bar called Christopher's End. This dive is so named for its location at the far end of Christopher Street, though the double entendre is quickly evident. The bar is filthy and raucous and exciting. It may seem like an unusual place to see a play, but Ludlam has recently been kicked out of La Mama Theatre, run by its Dwyane Ellen Stort, after a disagreement about royalties and profits earned by the original production. Ludlum refers to Stewart openly as a, quote, bureaucratic bitch. The playing space at Christopher's End is simply an amalgam of rickety boards laid across the bar, with a painted drop of beakers and vessels, suggesting a mad scientist's lair. You are packed tightly into a crowd of young and handsome men, some in leather and all in dungarees. The men openly flirt and cling to each other lustfully. The spirit of the Stonewall riots hangs in the thick spring air, and the sparkle of disco is only taking shape on a distant red bandana-hued horizon. Disregarding any kind of union rules, for this is off-off-off-Broadway, the play begins very, very, very late. The plot quickly descends into a depraved tale that unapologetically hurls gothic horror against B-movies, wrapped around the core of Charles Perrault's fairy tale with Bella Bartok's opera Bluebeard's Castle, H.G. Wells's Island of Dr. Moreau, and a dash of Christopher Marlowe's Faustus thrown in. The production collages sources liberally and sometimes violently into an exciting new work. As the titular character, Baron Kanazar von Bluebeard, Ludlum leads the company intensely committed to his dream of creating a third gentler genital, 
a clear metaphor for homosexuality. Ludlum is brash and charismatic, boldly displaying an electric blue beard and, eventually, a nest of pubic hair dyed cobalt to match. The audience is enchanted, whooping at all the inside queer jokes and unafraid to break the fourth wall with a game of call and response, spurred on by a spirit of drunken revelry and Ludlum's occasional winks to the crowd. Although his troupe has gained a cult following over the past three years, this is just the beginning. Tripping over a bar stool, your heels accidentally click. Now, you are at Vassar College in a darkened auditorium called Avery Hall, surrounded by 20-something students, many in trendy thick-framed glasses and fleece hoodies. You have traveled 30 years to the first spring of the new millennium. Some of the same clothes worn at Christopher's End remain, a fringed vest here, a worn t-shirt there, though they have been purchased on weekend day trips to the trendy vintage stores in a now-gentrified East Village. A tall, slim actor named Bradford Lorick stands on the stage dressed as Clytemnestra, Aeschylus's matricidal heroine. The play is called Clytemnestra's Unmentionables, Lorick's senior project that pastiches text from Charles Ludlum and his contemporaries as channeled through the most iconic heroines of Greek tragedies. Though a program dropped on the floor reveals that Lorick identifies as male, the performative gender of this character is unclear, transforming his masculine body before your eyes with a tightly laced corset and harsh makeup. Lorick circles a raised porcelain clawfoot tub at the center of the stage, once, twice, three times, before plunging into the water, sending a torrent onto the stage metaphoric in part for Phaedra's suicide. As you stretch to get a better look at the puddle slowly pooling across the boards like molasses, Lorik emerges with a gasp, garments made transparent and clinging to his frame. Your heels accidentally click. It is the early part of summer in 1984, and you have returned to the Big Apple. A heady potpourri of cigarettes, cologne, and earth permeates your nostrils. Settled into a gallery and performance space called the Limbo Lounge, that makes Christopher's End look high-rent, you realize that you are in the East Village during its so-called Renaissance. You are vaguely familiar with this period through your appreciation of artists like Keith Haring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and a young Madonna, but this is a tad more down at heel than you had expected. People are congregated, drinking piss beer, focused on a very narrow stage, where Charles Bush is performing in his play, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. The audience is engaged and excited, but not without an air of sadness. You think you can see an aging Ludlum watching from a corner of the room, but your eyes are probably playing tricks in the veil of New York haze on a hot night. The play is wild and crass, and a very pretty and lithe Bush is nearly naked, costumed provocatively as an adolescent girl, with a headpiece more reminiscent of John Arneil's Art Nouveau illustrations of Oz than the ancient Near East. Two gym-fit boys posing in loincloths pull Bush, portraying a virgin sacrifice for a succubus across the stage while trading knife-sharp dialogue that drips with gay innuendo. This reminds you of Ludlum's Bluebeard. It's somehow different, but you can't quite put your finger on it. As you look at the enraptured audience, you can't help but notice several young men looking gaunt, 
their cheeks dotted with wine-dark lesions. As the tightly packed standing room crowd shifts, a glass falls to the floor and shatters. Time stands still. You lose your balance, and your heels click. As you open your eyes, you find yourself initially blinded by the sting of bright theatrical lights. You are sitting cross-legged among a sea of other audience members on a stage. As your focus settles, you see Taylor Mack in your midst, dressed in a gown of paper coins and a powder-white face awash in messy glitter. His head is shaved and unadorned, and his dimples are charming. The humidity makes his dress stick to his lissom frame. You have landed gently on the other side of the globe at the powerhouse in Brisbane, Australia, during the balmy winter of 2013. Mac is closing a performance of his abridged 20th century concert, a cabaret show that mixes hit songs from all 10 decades of the last century. Embodying a self-professed stage-worthy representation of himself, Mac discards his male gender to become Judy, always lowercase, and borrowed from the Judy Garland a chanteuse who performs in the genre of pastiche, a notion drawn directly from the plays of Charles Ludlum. Mac begins to sing Irving Berlin's 1924 song, All Alone, which Judy delivers as a comment on Berlin's childhood in New York's Jewish tenements. Through this lens, the song becomes an ironic statement on the crowded conditions of this neighborhood in the first decade of the 20th century. You and the other audience members have been called to the stage and then separated by Judy into various community groups that populated the tenements. Babies, kids, parents, grandparents, teenagers, and neighbors. The audience is admittedly small, as the show was bizarrely billed as a drag act, but those in attendance are enchanted. Each group is assigned a sound to perform, as you have been deemed a wailing baby. As Mac points to your group, you follow the cue and begin to mimic an infant yowl. This is fun. Judy continues to croon Berlin's just for a moment you were mine, and then you seem to vanish like a dream. Your heels click once, twice, and three times, and you disappear, returning to a room of your own. Now, slip off those ridiculous heels. Aside from the penchant for queer performance, you might ask, what do these four diverse performers, Ludlum, Bush, Lorik, and Mac, have in common? This brief historical narrative, written in an attempt to evoke the ridiculous theater style, is structured to give you a taste of the four artists who are profiled in this book. Ludlum, the very root of this study, begins a distinct approach to the ridiculous in the late 1960s, setting off a tradition and subsequent legacy that is extended through the performance work of Bush, Lorik, and Mac until the present day. All of these legatees of Ludlum rely on ridiculous tenants, including camp, drag, pastiche, and traditional theater skills, which were all at the core of Ludlum's original plays. To reinvent the ridiculous genre as a reflection of their own times and places. In the decades since Ludlum's 1987 death, gay life, culture, and politics in America has changed rapidly from AIDS to hate crime to don't ask, don't tell, to the legalization of gay marriage in 2015. As a gay theater, the ridiculous has kept pace with the times by juxtaposing contemporary social issues with pop culture and extant literature. While the tradition of the Ludlamesque ridiculous is kept alive, it is transformed and manipulated to fit the missions and talents of individual performers. 
Examining Ludlam's life and work helps us to see what it was like to synonymously be a gay person and a gay artist from the 1960s to the 1980s, as well as how such work and identity making built a foundation for those who followed in his footsteps as a queer legacy. But how did Ludlam's ridiculous differ from his predecessors and peers, and how and where and why did this particular queer legacy take shape? Let's start at the beginning. I hear it's a very good place to start. Thank you so much for that. My pleasure. Let's uh, start at the beginning then. So one of the, I absolutely loved reading that intro when I first started reading your book. And one of the lines that just stood out for me was um, the line about Ellen Stewart. Okay. And so um, what I'd want to ask is, uh, what is your approach to this book as a queer historiography? and, And why is that important? Yeah, you know, so I went to Tufts University for my PhD, and I'm trained as a theater historian uh, by Lawrence Senelik, who's very much coming from that kind of, you know, mid-century Harvard, (laughs) I would say, uh, tradition of narrative histories. Um, And pretty early on, when I knew that I was going to work on history, but also queer history specifically, um, I realized that oftentimes the discipline is so directed by a kind of, you know, Western patriarchal linear narrative that, that pretends to present moments as, you know, quote unquote facts, basically, which is what we learn in third grade in history class. So when I started investigating Ludlum uh, about 15 years ago now, uh, what became evident in terms of uh, doing performance ethnography and relying on uh, interviews of people that knew him or worked with him or were in his milieu, like Ellen Stewart, like you mentioned, um, a lot of these stories were contradictory. Um, and I started to find there was more value um, in in kind of working through the contradictions and the way they aligned um, and, and the kind of queer factor of, of emotion or, or affect, we might call it. So uh, basically what happened was I, I came up with this kind of concept called lateral historiography. And what I, th- I think lateral historiography tries to do is move away from that kind of linear temporality, and it allows you to jump around and make different comparisons. So at one point in this book, I say it's a choose-your-own-adventure novel, and I hope that people will kind of you, – you can read it, of course, from you know page one to the end, but you also can dive in and, and read it in different uh, directions, whether that's lateral or diagonal or backwards – um, and I think that says something about the way uh, that queer people think about time and think about history, because so often our histories have been uh, forgotten or have been excluded or have been written by other people. Right. And even almost um, written in, like you said, that Western context, too, in, yeah. in academia. Yeah, and so much about history is about uh, in, in the West is about progress, right? Which is that note mm-hmm. of moving forward. Uh, but by moving backward, I think there's a heck of a lot to discover and a lot to learn. Yeah. So, what is the ridiculous theater, and who were the early figureheads of it? Sure. So, I kind of mentioned this in the piece that I just read, but it's a uh, it's an American form of theater that comes out of New York in the mid '60s. Um, and I would say, arguably, it's the first gay theater, the first queer theater in America that solidifies. Um, it is a political theater in that it is always 
um, mimicking the normative world or the heteronormative world and then shoving it back at that world. So I always say it's sort of like a, a mirror in a way, but Ludlum's theater particularly, I say, is a uh, it's like the closet space where queer people are, people are closeted, but you're anybody's invited to come play dress up in the closet, basically, uh, and to kind of play with those tenants. The tenants I mentioned quickly are, are camp, particularly, and the way that I think about camp is the language between different queered or queer people, the way that they can uh, communicate in a, in a kind of a esoteric or underground way. Um, but it also uses clowning, it uses pastiche, it uses uh, great theatrical traditions, which both Ludlam and Taylor Mac would say. Um, but I think it really was the root of many, many queer performance artists who are performing today. So in terms of the origin, interesting, like really, it came out of Andy Warhol's factory, though Andy Warhol had very little to do with it. Uh, in that there were there were two guys who were working there, John Vaccaro, who was a director, uh, and Ronald Tavell, who was a writer, director, actor. Um, and Tavell uh, had a little tiff with Edie Sedgwick at the time uh, in the factory, and he actually got removed <laughs> because Edie said he was a pervert. And so when he left, he had been writing screenplays for Andy Warhol at the time to be filmed at the factory. And he took those scripts and he decided to perform them as plays, essentially. And I mean, these were plays that were happening, you know, at movie theaters at two o'clock in the morning or at people's apartments. There were a lot of mind-enhancing drugs involved, um, but it was very much that spirit of the 60s in New York when you have the kind of intersection of civil rights and, you know, queer rights and and, and gay liberation, moving towards feminism, all of these things coming together. Um, and a kind of, you know, post-war avant-garde uh, continuing in New York City. So basically what happened was uh, Charles Ludlam at the time was younger. He was at Hofstra and he was coming into the city a little bit more regularly to see plays. And he became enamored uh, with, with this group who called themselves the playhouse of the ridiculous. So uh, he attended a play and he was swept up in it. And one of the stories is when he was first noticed is uh, they were doing a performance of a play called screen test at the playhouse uh, and screen test is about a director treating a young actor terribly, basically. And uh, Tavell uh, was was playing the uh, uh, no, sorry, Vaccaro was playing the uh, the the director, and Tavell was directing at the time. And Mario Montez, who was a famous downtown drag queen, was playing the woman. And so Ludlum didn't like the way that uh, Mario Montez was being kind of abused on stage, and so. <laughs> a couple of nights later, he came back and he dressed up as Norma Desmond in a wig and he took to the stage and kind of took over the play. And so very quickly, he became a huge part of the playhouse uh, and was writing a lot of their early plays for them. It all came to a head in 1969, uh, 68, 69, when Ludlam had written a play called The Conquest of the Universe, uh, which La Mama just did a couple of years ago, actually. And I actually he, caught that production. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's great. Yeah, and it directed uh, by, by Ludlum's partner. Um, but uh, what happened was with Conquest, uh, there were just huge artistic differences, kind of an ego. And so Ludlum said, I'm taking my play and I'm taking it you know, across the street. And they said, you can't take the play, it's ours. So what Ludlum did was he changed the name of the play 
from Conquest of the Universe to when queens collide as a riff on these, you know, gay men having this kind of spat and started his own company called the Ridiculous Theatrical Company. Um, And a lot of the company went with him because he was so incredibly charismatic uh, and popular. So from there, you know, Ludlum goes on and it becomes one of the longest repertory companies in New York City eventually finding a home in Sheridan Square, kind of kitty corner to where the Stonewall Bar is. Um, and as he he matured uh, and kind of left the drugs behind, <laughs> uh, his plays became more serious. So he also was a, a great reader and a great lover of theatrical tradition. You know, he regularly taught Commedia dell'arte and, and clowning classes at Connecticut College and at NYU. And so he was mostly influenced by uh, Scribe and Sardou, the well-made play format from the 19th century. Uh, also, Moliere was hugely influential to, influential to him. Um, and, uh, and, and Greek comedy as well, Aristophanes. So the, the kind of plays of the 70s and 80s were mostly taken from literature, like Camille or Bluebeard, which I talked about. Um, and then as he moved into the 80s, um, plays more about um, what it meant to be a queer American in that particular period, but always through that ridiculous comedic lens. Right. And so um, let's move on to the people who were, who've kind of become his legacy. So let's talk about Charles Bush. Sure. Um, you talk about Ludlum's politically charged theater and from the ashes of the Stonewall riots. And then you contrast that with Charles Bush's escapist theater. So what's going on in New York city that causes that shift? Yeah, it's, it's kind of two parts. So the first part is, uh, Charles Bush is this kind of young, beautiful thing. And, and Ludlam was quite jealous of him. Actually, uh, Bush appeared in a production of, of Bluebeard when, uh, the actor playing Hecate, the goddess of hell was, was out for a couple of weeks and they knew each other. Um, but, the first thing that happened was a kind of cultural movement from the West Village to the East Village. So by this time, the West Village had started to gentrify. The East Village was just, you know, uh, a pit. But it was because of that, it was the East Village Renaissance, right? Where all of these famous artists come out. And so he started there with his troupe, just kind of as fun. He was working as a secretary, writing kind of silly, campy plays. Vampire Lesbians of Sodom being one of the first. Um, but But sort of the trajectory of of Bush's career would change quickly because of HIV AIDS. And so his plays would become rather than a place to kind of to meet and feel political, but also to hook up, which Ludlum's plays absolutely had been during gay liberation. um, These plays became a, a place of escapism and queer kinship and comfort to come together because the whole community was dying essentially. Right. So it kind of creates this, uh, like you said, escapism, because sometimes you have to put things away and just have a place for people to just live and forget and laugh and cry together. Yeah. And I think that's one of the magical things about live performance, right? Is that ephemerality, that coming together where for a little while, it seems like time can stand still. Um, and even if people can't completely forget uh, the trauma and the grief and the pain they're experiencing, they can do it in a place where they feel supported. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right. And and so how is he received because of this? It's it's kind of all over the place. That's a great question. Um, the kind of Ludlum acolytes were very dismissive of him because they said his plays were not as academic or um, as uh, deeply entrenched in that kind of pastiche of, of theater. Uh, Charles's plays are all told from the point of a kind of grand dame who runs a repertory company in the 19th century. That's so, so I, I, what Charles Bush does brilliantly. And if anyone can see him perform, they should, cause he's amazing is he's always playing Charles Bush as X, Y, Z as the lead actress, as Charles Bush. Right. Um, there's this kind of wiring going on, but, um, regardless of that, he really shot to fame very quickly. So vampire lesbians of Sodom would become, the longest running play at Provincetown Playhouse in New York City. Um, and eventually he'd really be the first ridiculous uh, actor, performer to go to Broadway with this, with this tale play of the allergist's wife, which he was not in, he wrote. Um, but that wouldn't be repeated again until you'd say Justin Vivian Bond and then Taylor Mac. So uh, I think that Charles is doing just fine. <laughs> um, and, has kind of attracted a whole new generation of people. Um, But a lot of people don't know about that really intimate personal connection that he had with Charles Ludlam. Right. And can you go into a little bit more of that connection that they had together? Yeah, absolutely. So it it started out that uh, Charles went to Northwestern. Um, He grew up in Manhattan in kind of a Maine story. His aunt was kind of like Maine, his aunt Lillian. But uh, he went to college in Chicago, and it just so happened that the Ridiculous Theatrical Company was touring at the time and went through, um, and Charles attended and got invited to one of the parties, and so became friends with some of the actors. Um, And when he was back in New York, he looked up Ludlum, um, and Ludlum had attended one of his performances and was quite flattering. (laughs) But then there was an incident where... Um, Ludlam promised him that he could use their theater at midnight at Sheridan Square. Um, and so Charles went forward, yeah, Charles Bush, with uh, a- arranging the performance and making posters. And when it came time, uh, the theater knew nothing about it. <laughs> so, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. In time, it would work out and be fine. But I think part of it was, which I mentioned, is uh, – the kind of shtick of Charles Ludlum is he was kind of this elfin hirsute guy who would play women brilliantly, brilliant actor. Um, but that became part of the, the the comedy. So Camille's infamously hairy chest, right? But Charles could really pass as a beautiful young woman. Um, and I think that as in all sort of competitive environments, that, that world in downtown New York, um, Charles was the rising star. He, he says, if, if this is not apocryphal, that there was a moment in, in, in Chicago when he was at Northwestern where he was holding up Camille's dress in front of a mirror and it was like all about Eve, kind of. Um, but I don't know if that's just kind of queer folklore or, or if it really happened. <laughs> right. And so you also talk about uh, Charles Bush and his plays kind of playing a role in assimilating the ridiculous theater into mainstream culture, correct? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's basically because of Broadway, but also several films that have been made, right? So I think it's about accessibility, where these this whole kind of different group of people and then further generation has the access. Right. So um, let's talk about uh, Bradley Lorick. And, and, and in your book, what I like is you kind of talk about the uh, time is a huge theme through uh-huh. this. And you talk about history being linear, jumping around all over the place. Um, but a- as we kind of get further and further away from Charles Ludlum, and he, and he passed away in the, the late 80s, correct? Yeah, 87. Yeah. And so um, these connections to him become more distant. So how is that reflected in... Bradford Lurick's work. Yeah, so Bradford is he's a little bit older than I am, and neither both of us would have been very, very young when Charles Ludlum passed away. So I never saw, you know, one of his plays, unfortunately, except for on film at the Billy Rose Theater Collection um, and La Mama. But uh the way that Bradford came to Ludlum is is similar how in the way that I did during graduate school, which was academic. So he was a student at Vassar, and Vassar has an experimental theater program as its kind of major for undergraduates. Um, and while he was there, he encountered the plays. I think Grand Tarot was the first play that he had read um, and kind of became enamored, not just with the plays, which I encourage everybody to read, um, but also Charles Ludlum's essays, which are so really brilliant and fascinating. So what happened was, I, I call this kind of queer legacy an academic or an intellectual legacy. So even though he didn't know them, it became a huge um, theoretical and even textual influence on the kind of work that he was doing. Um, so, uh, moving forward from that, uh, Bradford will often use direct quotes from Ludlum, uh, in the work that he's making. Right. And, and how would you classify the work that he's making? You talk about in the book about his, uh, production of Christine Jorgensen. What are the kind, what kind of techniques is he using coming from that realm of academia? Yeah, I mean, so it's it's coming from what he calls um, <laughs> a kind of existentialism in a way. So like like searching through the meaningless of of these performances, but more specifically, what he does is um, he uses what I call mimetic ventriloquism in the book, which is a pre-recording of his own voice and then lip syncing to it. So it's a kind of disembodying embodiment in a way. Um, also the, the layering of Ludlum's text, which I mentioned, I, I would refer to as a hyper pastiche. So pastiche, I'm sure everybody knows this, but pastiche, um, it comes from the Italian pasticcio, which means pie. So it's like a, a layering of all the ingredients, right? Just kind of throwing everything together. Um, so Bradford continues that, but then puts the creator on top of it, basically. Um, so in his first play, Clytemnestra's Unmentionables that I read about, uh, he's often quoting, Charles Ludlum within the play in Christine Jorgensen, which is a little bit different. Um, it's, it's source is from a record that he found in a, in a record shop in the East village. Um, and it covers, uh, Christine, who was the first, um, post-operative transsexual in America, uh, in the fifties, of course, which I'm sure everybody knows, but there's a, uh, an interview that Christine did with Nipsey Russell in 1957. Um, and, Bradford was really, really intrigued um, because he was working in lip sync at the time with embodying that record through his own body. So basically what the play does is it it takes the record and it puts it on stage through lip sync. But at the same time, I think one of the coolest parts of it is what I call moments of beauty. So moments of beauty are basically taking um, 
pre-recorded sound like the record and then embracing the imperfections uh, of that sound. So a good example is there's a, there's a part in the book that I talk about where there was a scratch on the record, which couldn't be repaired. So what happened in the play was uh, Nipsey had asked this kind of leading question to Christine, uh, very uncomfortable, not surprisingly. And uh, the scratch became Bradford Lorick as Christine Jorgensen feeling his taffeta skirt out of discomfort. So it becomes this kind of culminating moment of precision and making a new kind of authenticity out of that uh, moment of imperfection on the record. Right. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. So um, let's talk about Taylor Mack, um, who's very big now. Yeah, out um, to fame. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, one of the things I love uh, about the way you talk about Mac and you use a quote from him where he considers himself more of a fool than a traditional drag queen. So could you talk about his concept of the fool and how that relates to Charles Ludlum's theater of the ridiculous? Absolutely. So, I mean, the kind of major point with Ludlum is Ludlum was very interested in the clown um, the clown as the kind of person within the space who can tell the truth. And, and, and uh, Taylor Mac connects that idea to the fool. Taylor would say um, that uh, his idea of the fool, and I should say for a moment, I'm using male pronouns for Taylor, uh, which he uses in everyday life. It's Judy when Taylor is performing. So I just wanted to, ah. that. Um, but Taylor would say that that his idea of the fool is really from Penny Arcade, and Penny Arcade is one of the kind of great uh, matrons of downtown theater who worked with Andy Warhol. Um, and Penny introduced the idea of uh, a queer person as someone who has been so hurt in their own life and so failed by society that they could never do it to anyone else, basically. And so from that, I talk about Taylor as being a kind of Pierrot. Pierrot is the, the, sat, the melancholy clown um, from French Comedia in the 19th century. Um, and so he becomes like a soothsayer. He can kind of uh, move between worlds um, in all of his plays, uh, but, but particularly in a 24-decade history, if anybody saw it, uh, which is very much about queerly moving through time, right, and, and transforming in a way. So I'd say a fool is transformative, a fool is inherently queer, a fool stands outside of normative society and is able to comment on it because they do stand outside. But when I talk about Taylor as a fool, I call him... Um, uh, le jeunesse abandonné à la nature, which is this French idea of the the kind of child who's abandoned in the woods. So for Taylor, and in, in queer context, it's about queer people who are abandoned by their families or by constructs of society. They come to the city and then they 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 lead the way and they build their own kind of fool societies, queer societies, in a way. Um, and and by by using the term queer is yes, you know, historically speaking, we can refer to LGBTQ people. But I'm also just referring to um, people who feel like they don't fit into the kind of constructs of a binary of of, of the way that we're taught to, to live in terms of gender codes or in terms of um, access or ability, et cetera. Right. And, and you also kind of go into his anarchism, right? And does that reflect in his society? Yeah, absolutely. I think that Taylor wants to break it down, but I always say Taylor wants to break it down and then he wants to put glitter all over it and make it beautiful again. So there's really a cycle in terms of what's happening with this work. 
it's kind of like that continual perpetual cycle of tearing down and then building up again with glitter. Yeah, exactly. Make it make it and, more beautiful, more fabulous, queerer. Right. I I love that. Um so again with Taylor Mac, he's performing in a post 9/11 world. Yeah. How does that affect his approach as an artist yeah this is a really fascinating question in terms of the world we're living in right now actually which i'll get to but uh right um the reason why 9-11 is really important to taylor's work particularly his early work is because it was it was in direct reaction to what was going on politically in new york so taylor is a is a trained actor uh an amazing singer as well um and when he was young uh in the early aughts he was just kind of getting cast in plays as a younger brother, right? You know, nothing too exciting. So he went to Provincetown, Massachusetts, and started playing around with what we call genderfuck drag, which is just um, completely messy um, and anarchist, like you said. And uh, that was where he learned about Ludlam. So moving forward, when coming back to New York, he started doing performances in bars in the East Village, like The Slide, um, which were inherently political theater. And I mean, arguably, you might say that he was one of the first actors to really speak out against George W. Bush at the time, because there was that weird kind of uh, patriotism that was floating around post 9-11. Um, right. And so I think that that kind of engagement is always what Taylor's doing. Uh, so, so for example, that that political thread continues through. I'd say all of Taylor's work is about rethinking American history to be inclusive. Um, but at inclusive inclusivity is, is done um, in a way that refuses to engage in nostalgia. So it's about reworking and rethinking um, and a coming together in a world that's constantly being torn apart. Um, he was really influenced as a teenager when he attended uh, one of the first AIDS walks to take place where he saw a queer community coming together when he was a kid. And so all of his work is about these, these communities, like, you know, the, the gay community in San Francisco in the 80s, that were being just thrust apart by, by the disease, but also by a society and a government that didn't support them, and still finding a way to come together and make art. So something that's really cool, if people don't know about it, is, and, and, and speaks very well of who Taylor is, who's an amazing human, uh, but he and his friends downtown have started the Trickle Up Project, um, which through COVID-19 uh, produces all this incredible original content for $10 a month. Um, and you can sign up and it's, it's original uh, works from really kind of amazing downtown queer performers in New York, not just queer downtown performers. Right. Well, I like what you said there with this, um, wait, you said trickle up. What's yeah. it called? It's called trickle up. Trickle up. It's just trickle up. So how does, he maintained obviously he's big now he's had uh, a play on broadway um just kind of taken all of theater by storm how does he still maintain his roots do you think taylor has assimilated or is taylor just completely just going against the grain even as almost the mainstream is it coming to him I think it's both. I think that any artist um, who is given opportunities, I mean, he's a MacArthur genius, you know, are, is going to take them. And so of right. course that has really changed um, his outreach um, and, and, and the possibilities, you know, for him. But at the same time, I think that his work is so grounded um, in his ethics 
and his empathy for people that that will never change because that's that's really the core of the work. And in the same way that Ludlam was so passionate about bringing people together post-gay liberation, um, Taylor is very much about bringing to be, together people now um, and really engaging and, and I think listening to each other. It's a big part of it. Right. Do you have any, so you said you had thoughts on um, sort of the world we're in now as it relates to Taylor Mack um, and his performance kind of like COVID-19. What, what do you think Charles Ludlam would be saying right now? Yeah. I mean, Charles Ludlam is a little different. <laughs> yeah. Right. He was very egotistical. Um, yeah. And he uh, was kind of notoriously mean, but at the same time, um, like all people, he was complicated and he was very incredible and caring for his community. So I think something that is shared by all of these performers is they, they're so tied into the idea of making art for the time that they live in. So Charles Ludlam always said about his work, my work isn't avant-garde. People always tried to say that he was avant-garde or that it was like absurdism, which it's not at all. Um, but he said, no, my, my work is of the perfect time. It's of this moment. And so I guarantee that he would continue that through um, and whether he was working on, you know, 19th century novels or more contemporary ideas, it would absolutely about be about the time that we're living in. I mean, you're not going to find a ridiculous uh, performer now who's not going to think about Donald Trump. Right. He would probably play play a significant role in, in the productions. Probably. I know that a couple of years ago, Everett Quinton, uh, Charles's partner, uh, did a production of Bluebeard and the uh, the third genital at the end was a Donald Trump face. So there you go. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So what would be like, could you find or identify a singular thread that connects all of these artists in in sort of a legacy, if you will? Sure. So camp is a huge part of it. And, and camp is that um, building of language and bringing together of people um, so that uh, they can understand what's going on. Charles Ludlam says specifically in his book, uh, camp is rage, which I think is brilliant because it's about um, making something beautiful out of that anger and that activism like we talked about with Taylor. So that's part of it. Another thing is subversion. So uh, contemporary ridiculous theater is not doing one of Ludlum's plays as it was done, you know, in 1973. I think it's subverting it because it's subversive art. And the only way to continue a legacy of subversion is to subvert that has what has come before, right? Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, not to be repetitive, but like I just said before, I think it's about work that is reflective of the time that we're living in. Yeah, I, I agree with that. All right. Um, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. The book is Charles Ludlam Lives, Charles Bush, Bradford Lorick, Taylor Mack, and the Queer Legacy of the Ridiculous Theatrical Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Sean F. Edgecombe, who is the Assistant Professor at Graduate Center at CUNY and College of Staten Island. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. 